0: Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 182 of the text, the first volume. And we're still in hypothesis number 21, uh, discussing uh, the revelation of one's thoughts. But at this point we are discussing um, the care that one has to give in terms of choosing who you would reveal those thoughts to and who you would entrust your conscience to, uh, not only because I think of bad advice that could be given, but actually damage to the conscience can take place. I think uh, it's a vulnerable part of who we are and uh, to reveal one's thoughts and the struggles that one has and uh, indiscriminately and to have that uh, be mistreated in some fashion can be damaging on a lot of different levels. And. Uh, so I think giving great, this is great counsel that we are given here uh, to show great care ourselves in choosing confessor, but also one who might be a spiritual director. So again, we're on page 182, letter F from the con. Abba Poyman said, never entrust your conscience to him about whom your heart is not informed by grace. So basically already what I said, but... That we would have uh, some level of discernment that through grace that God would lead us to one that we see who is uh, really informed about the spiritual life. But more than that, has an experiential knowledge of it, who treats one's conscience with a kind of delicacy. And so that our own conscience uh, about him would be informed uh, before uh, opening ourselves up to him. And again, I think this is very good counsel that often within the church, I think there is this kind of disconnected times from the spiritual tradition, as we've often talked about, and uh, simply by, as we've heard many times within the text, having uh, a white beard or white hair or being in the ministry for a long period of time doesn't necessarily mean that one is going to be a faithful and good counselor. Number two, once a brother who had fallen into a great sin came to Abba Lot. He was possessed by anguish and agitation and was continuously going in and coming out without being able to sit down. The elder, seeing the monk's agitation, said to him, what is wrong with you, brother? I've committed a great sin and I am unable to confess it, answered the monk. Confess it, the elder replied, and I will lift it. So the monk fell to the ground and said to Abelot, I fell into fornication, doing everything to accommodate the sin. After the elder heard his confession, he gave the brother his hand. And after raising him up, said to him, have courage, my child, for there is repentance. Go to the cave, sit there closed inside and fast for two days continuously. And I will take on myself half of the burden of your sin. Thus the brother went to the place of repentance and did as the elder had ordered. A period of three weeks time passed. Abelot was informed that God had received both his supplication and the repentance of the monk and had forgiven the sin. Immediately then he called the brother and revealed to him the mercy of God. From that time until his death, the brother remained in obedience to the elder. So a beautiful story. And once again, we, we see here the relationship between the elder and those in his care That it is not uh, simply a professional relationship, that there is some, a deep intimacy there where the elder out of his care and love for the one he's taken care of will take upon himself part of that penance uh, as this elder did, as Abba did. And to what measure, we don't even know. He has him fast for two days straight, but the, the depth of the penance may have been far greater. It's three weeks later, uh, we hear, <clears throat> if you pick that up, uh, when uh, Abelot is informed by God that the penance had been received, that his supplication had been heard. So uh, we don't also know what Abelot was doing during that time, if he was fasting or the depth of his prayer. Too, and we often hear this in the lives of the saints of their taking upon themselves penance on behalf of their penitents. And uh, again, uh, this shouldn't be for us, you know, after reading the fathers, just you know, a pious story, I think, uh, but rather something that should be certainly in the, those in the position of having the care of souls should be something that is, is fostered and embraced. And to do that, you have to have a spiritual life yourself and, uh, and have engaged in it for, for many years so that uh, there's a willingness to do this and do it fully and out of love for that individual. And again, I think this teaches us as well that we don't live the spiritual life in isolation. That uh, and we don't look at others' sins in a condescending fashion is, as, as in some, if in some way we are detached from their struggle, that we should see the, the burdens of another as our own. And I think in our day and age, we we know that there can be a kind of harshness, a critical spirit that we've often talked about, and where, whereas the attitude of Uh, The Christian should be one of tenderness and gentleness towards others. That we would look upon the struggle and see there first the action of the evil one, we are told, or of the demons, and place the blame there. And if there's anger or judgment, that it would be directed toward them, not towards the individual. And that instead we would take up prayer on their behalf. Okay. Number three, once a monk visited Abba Poyman and said to him, Father, what must I do? I'm bothered very much by thoughts of fornication. I went to Abba Bastion, who told me, you must not allow these perverse thoughts to linger for any time in your soul. Abba Poyman answered him, the deeds of Abba Ibastian are like those of the angels in heaven. And he forgets the fact that you and I are weak and are always troubled by perverse thoughts. Take courage and know, my child, that if a monk restrains his stomach and his tongue and remains separated from the world, he will not die. So what Abba Poyman sees here is the, the need to be encouraging and to, you know to be again with the one who's struggling uh, in the battle, and, uh, and not to see one as above it. And uh, this other Abba, and I'll quit trying to pronounce his name because i butchered it a couple of times already, uh, was engaged him in such a way that it gave the sense that uh, it humiliated, I think, the, the young monk, where he became even more discouraged in the struggle with the sin. And this can always be a great danger You know, that again, uh, as if we go back to the first uh, sentence that we read about really discerning well whether or not uh, you've been informed by grace about an individual before you open your conscience to them, that if we can be thrown into discouragement or despair about our state, and that the evil one at times will use that. Sorry about that. Somebody had their mic open. Uh, Where was I? Uh, if a person can be discouraged or thrown into desolation and it can be done in such a subtle and easy way that the evil one is going to uh, take advantage of that, you know, to have uh, one who is in the spiritual care of others be short or curt uh, in how they engage them or in the advice that they are given, not really discerning well what is going on in the heart or the depth of the, the battle that they are, are waging. And, uh, and so, again, a compassionate soul, uh, the, the spiritual elder needs to be. Okay. A monk was bothered by the temptation of fornication. He therefore went to a great and renowned elder and after he had confessed his thoughts to him, asked the elder to pray for him. Then the monk returned to his cell. He was troubled yet again. And again, he went to the elder, confessed to him a second time the same thing and begged him to pray for him. The elder agreed and began uh, uh, again to beseech God with fervor. Among other things, he said in his prayer, Lord, reveal to me how this brother can battle his temptation and where the benefit is in his prolonged struggle with this demonic thing. For I besought thee with fervor, and yet he did not find rest. And indeed, God revealed to the elder the life of the brother. He saw him sitting near the demon of fornication. Next to him, there was also an angel of the Lord who had been sent to assist him. The angel was outraged with the brother since he did not rely totally on the help of God. In other words, he did not struggle to repel the unclean thoughts with zealous prayer. Quite the opposite. He enjoyed these thoughts and gave himself over to them with all his mind. The elder immediately realized, therefore, that the source of the temptation was the monk himself. He called him and informed him of this. You are the reason, he told him. But the war against you has not yet fled for you find these thoughts pleasurable and succumb to them so the elder taught him how he must resist the onslaught of these thoughts and to expel them through prayer the monk came to his senses thanks to the teaching and prayer of the elder and thus found respite for his soul and so we find here a couple of interesting things that the elder has to beseech God for wisdom, to be able to offer guidance, that when he sees the young monk still entrenched uh, in his struggle and being overcome by this demon that was afflicting him, he wasn't able to see the reason for it or to discern it from the things that the monk had been telling him. And so it's only when he prays that then it's revealed to him that uh, the the young monk had been giving himself over freely to the thoughts that were giving rise then to the temptation and taking great joy in them, that he wasn't uh, doing his part, as it were, to take hold of the grace that God was giving him uh, in order to to engage in the battle. We've often talked about what the fathers call synergy, that there is this Uh, synergistic relationship between ourselves and God. And so the abundance of grace is given to us to enter into the spiritual life, but still in freedom uh, that we are called to, to, to take that grace up and not hold it to be something that is cheap, but to see the cost at which it came to us, embrace it and then engage in the battle as fully as we can. And so the elders honest with him about this, not abandoning him because of the fact that he had been giving himself over those thoughts, but revealing to him the real cause, again, of why he was still afflicted and then gradually drawing him out of that. Ambrose wrote outrage since he did not rely totally on the help of God. Love that. Yes. You know, it's the angel is outraged and it's sort of an interesting thought. You know, it, it reveals to us how an angel, someone with, whose vision is not darkened, would see the grace of God and the preciousness of that grace and how, you know, how it is when it is scorned or neglected. And that, that is how uh, it was, uh, that's what was taking place in these circumstances. It's not only that he was weak. On some level, but he was taking great joy in the very thing that was leading him into sin. And so, even while sort of communicating to his elder that he was being afflicted and asking for his prayers, he was not then embracing the gift. In fact, he was doing the opposite, he was scorning it, rejecting it, or taking it for granted. And again, you know, I think this is important for the, the spiritual life as well, that we, we don't treat the grace of God cheaply, uh, that we remember at what cost our redemption came, that we would hold it precious. It's not as though God has something greater to give us than his only begotten son the, and the fullness of his love. And so we don't want to enter the spiritual battle half-heartedly or taking for granted the things that God has given us. Anthony, so much for grace alone, one, on, the, on the one hand, all good is from God, all good is grace, but we must exercise the faculty of human nature, which is also a gift to choose the grace, to at least choose the desire for grace. I think St. Anselm says this in One Truth or on Free Will. Well, yeah, I think it is still grace alone uh, because you sort of explain that as you go on a little bit further. That even the grace to desire to take hold of what God gives us and to embrace it fully is in in and of itself uh, a gift of God, and uh, and so you know I think you know part of when we receive Holy Communion. We would have this in mind or when we receive uh, the grace of confession, that we would be praying that we would take it up fully and that it would uh, bring about what God desires the most within, within our soul. One of the things that has been striking to me in celebrating the divine liturgy in the Byzantine rite is the prayer that said right before uh, one receives Holy Communion, there's a long litany that uh, the congregation and the priests both say uh, right before receiving that uh, is praying for exactly this. And you know that it would be for the remission of our sins, but also that it would be applied in, in the way that's most needed for us and that we would receive it in the way that God intends. And so it brings home in a very concrete way that we, we aren't simply taking possession of something you know, in a sort of a consumeristic kind of way, but it really compels us to think about what it is that we are receiving before we do so. Any other thoughts so far? Okay, number five. Another brother who was also embattled by unclean thoughts about falling into fornication, went to an elder and begged him to pray for him so that the warfare against him might subside. The elder agreed to do so, imploring God on the monk's behalf for seven days. On the seventh day, he asked the brother, brother, how goes the war? Very badly, the monk answered. I've experienced no relief in myself. As soon as the elder heard this, he was astonished and asked God to reveal to him the reason that the warfare against the brother had not subsided. That night, Satan appeared to him and told him, Elder, I assure you that from the first day that you began to beg God, I departed from the brother. He, however, has his own demon and his own war because of his gluttony. In other words, I have no part in his warfare. He fights himself, eating and drinking and sleeping a great deal. He does not simply satisfy himself, but overindulges. So interesting. You know, that I like the imagery here that he creates his own war. And uh, Philip Neary had this little saying that we are often the carpenter of our own crosses. And this is reminiscent of that for me, that we are often the cause of the spiritual battle that we are engaged in. Like this young monk, you know, that part of the reason that he was struggling with his sexual appetite is that he was giving himself over so freely to his appetite for food and overindulging. And so he was opening himself up to a warfare that then undermined his battle with the sexual appetites, with lust. And uh, the Desert Fathers often saw lust and gluttony tied together. And so if one is struggling with lust in particular, often the the remedy that would be given would be to fast, to order one's appetite in another arena that perhaps is easier for one to engage in that battle, that the control of one's appetite for food, the control of how much we eat. And when we strengthen our will in this regard and humble the body in this fashion, then it becomes easier for us to humble another bodily appetite in this spiritual struggle as well as to uh overcome the particular temptations that come to us and uh and i remember the first time i read that it was in john cassian's uh breakdown of the eight vices and it's funny when you never have heard that before in your whole life and I think we can see even from these monks who struggle with thoughts of fornication, you know, our society is so filled with this kind of hypersensuality and, you know, men and, and young women are, you know, from their youth uh, exposed to all sorts of kinds of things that would stimulate it. but rarely is you know, is spoken about directly. Not that fasting is never talked about, but I think this connection between the two bodily appetites, and in fact, the connection between all the eight vices and that to, to strengthen oneself in one arena is to strengthen oneself uh, in all the arenas altogether. So we don't want to neglect any particular area that we are struggling with. And so we can see here his neglect of ordering his bodily appetite for food led to his being struck down in the arena of sensuality. And uh, I think if young men and women, uh, those engaging in the search live press for the first time were informed about this, it would at least give a frame in which to fight the battle, to give you a sense, all right, I have to understand who I am as a human being. And that part of what I'm struggling to do here is to order my desires, to order my appetites. And so I can see the wisdom of the fathers, what they learned from experience about how fasting is this essential element of the spiritual life. And in fact, as we go further and further into the Avogatinos or into the Ladder of Divine Ascent, the Philokalia, uh, fasting is not something that is optional that it is to be a regular part of the spiritual life. And uh, again, this is a difficult thing for us because we have such a- access to, to food and uh, we graze and are taught to graze and told even that that's healthy, you know, eat multiple meals throughout the, co- you know, throughout the course of the day. Uh, and so we hobble ourselves in this kind of spiritual battle And uh, because we overindulge and we can't make gluttony simply the individual who's stuffing his face, you know, with hot wings and beer, you know, where there's obvious an obvious problem there, you know, that uh, gluttony has many different forms and we have to be aware of them. There can be a person who is even sort of the just so person will not eat something unless it's cooked perfectly just for them. And there is a kind of overindulgence there that fits under this.
1: Uh...
0: Oh, goodness sake. Okay. <laughs> uh, that was interesting. I think that was a, a FaceTime call. But uh, where was I? Uh... Talk about being knocked off the rails.
1: Wanting things just so.
0: That's right. So wanting things just so perfectly that we become uh, unsatisfied with simplicity. And so we want things to be prepared for us in the way that we like them or uh, in an extravagant way. Uh, so it's not just an overabundance, it can take multiple different forms and so uh, I'll try to find, I have uh, a little uh, sheet that I prepared with those on it and it's, it's helpful to see them all because I think we, we feel sometimes if we avoid just the, the, the massive overeating uh, that we're avoiding gluttony and it takes many different forms. Attachment to having life the way we want it. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't label that under gluttony. I think, you know, that's more of like self will, self love, self esteem. It probably fall, falls under uh, than, than gluttony. Uh, but don't worry, we'll, we'll eventually get to that as well. Okay. Number six. A monk asked an elder, Father, if a certain worry comes to me and I can find no one in whom to confide my torment, what should I do? The elder answered, I believe that God will send his grace to help you if you truly beseech him. Listen to a pertinent story. There was once a struggler in the skeet. Listening to the thoughts of another, he himself fell into sinful thoughts. Since he was unable to entrust them to anyone, because in his soul he felt no trust for anyone that he knew, he took the sheepskin, which he used as an overcoat, and prepared to depart for another place. But behold, the grace of God appeared before him as a virgin and counseled him as follows. Go nowhere, but stay here with me. Know that nothing bad resulted from all that you heard. Indeed, the monk was persuaded by this messenger from God and remained, and immediately his heart was healed. So, listening to the thoughts of another, uh, that he began to fall into similar thoughts. And we've heard the fathers in uh, various things that we've read warn against this. So we have to be careful in terms of what we reveal within the confessional, the detail uh, and uh, priests have to be careful in terms of how they guide and direct others and that we don't want to indiscriminately uh, talk about certain things in too greater detail that it would stimulate the passions in another. And we, we see this uh, monk struggling with this, but uh, he's, he's told that not, not to allow it to drive him out of what is greater. And that is the monastic life that he has embraced, that the path ahead uh, will be filled with the grace of God in such a way that he will be able to deal with these thoughts by engaging in the spiritual battle. And all that he needs to do is to be able to trust in the providence of God, that despite the circumstances that God is not going to abandon him. And simply because the thoughts were, uh, you know, the thoughts were aroused on this one occasion, he should not flee. Now, we'll find out in the next hypothesis that it's another thing to purposely put ourselves in situations where we're constantly going to be agitated in mind and heart by worldly things. But in these circumstances, he's telling him. That in the spiritual battle, God will provide the grace that is needed, that we can't completely protect ourselves from the things of this world or the temptations that the evil one will bring upon us. And, but we don't want to let go of a greater good because we find ourselves embattled. There has to be a kind of courage. Uh, St. John Climacus describes it in the latter and the step entitled manly or unmanly fears that there has to be a kind of courage with which we enter into the spiritual battle, that even when we find ourselves knocked down, that we get up again and we continue to wage the warfare and not let ourselves be scared off uh, at the first sign of battle. Any thoughts on this section? Okay. Uh, from St. Barsenufius. A brother questioned an elder saying, Father, must I seek the counsel of the elders for all the temptations which take root in my heart? It is not necessary, answered the elder, for someone to be questioned about all the temptations which occur in his heart, for they pass away. For example, a man may, can be insulted by others, yet ignore the insults and not concern himself with them. If, however, one of those insulting him bothers him or attacks him, then he must report him to the authorities. In other words, he will go to the authorities and submit a charge against the one who's attacked him. The same thing happens with temptations too. That is, we must reveal to our spiritual fathers only those things which attack us or remain in our soul for a long time. The brother said, how does it happen that if I find fault with others after I've confessed? You criticize others even after confession, answered the elder, because within you reigns a disposition toward vindication, which has not died. Criticize yourself and the condemnation will pass from you to others. So two different things here, but both both are very important uh, that we don't have to worry and don't have to feel that we have to lay out every single thought or temptation that comes to us. That often we are embattled, thoughts will come and through our prayer, we might gently set them aside and not pay them any mind. And so they might be frequent, they might even come up over us like a wave, but if we've not given ourselves over to them, then we don't necessarily have to to seek out uh, the counsel of an elder or to lay out every single thought as they came to us. It's when we find ourselves being uh, not just embattled but really beaten down by them or overwhelmed by them or giving ourselves gradually over to them that we would want to reveal them to our spiritual father so that he can offer counsel as to how to deal with them. Uh, Because You know, we've mentioned before uh, the number of thoughts that we have given a day. I read a new study actually recently where they're getting a little bit more sophisticated. And I don't think they know exactly, but they're sort of tracking the brain's activity. And the most recent number is about 6,000 or 6,200 thoughts a day. Uh, but still that it can range, they're saying, uh, up to like 40,000 thoughts a day. And so there are going to be, you know, thoughts that are benign, but they're also going to be thoughts that could arouse the passions that are in the form of a temptation, but we don't necessarily have to be filled with anxiety about that, that this is part and parcel of the spiritual battle of being a human being and moving towards this kind of internal stillness. And this is another part of the, the battle that we struggle with this multiplicity of thoughts, as we've talked about, and we're trying to move to simplicity of thought through the short prayers or the Jesus prayer, to move to both an external and internal stillness. And so it becomes very important for us not to allow our minds and our hearts to become agitated or disturbed. Uh, but while we are seeking that, we are often going to struggle with that multiplicity of thoughts. And we will be, you know, attacked and bothered uh, just as the person is attacked and bothered by someone who's insulting him. The evil one can do that to, to us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we, Uh, are failing in the spiritual battle, I guess would be the best way to put it, that this is part of being in the spiritual arena, that the the battle is primarily psychological, and it's going to deal with our thoughts, and we have to get used to that fact, Uh, both in terms of the, the, how we enter into the struggle, by taking our thoughts captive, but also that We are going to have to deal regularly with uh, all these thoughts that come upon us from day to day. Uh, It's funny, you know, in talking to people about the spiritual life, once they enter into this, they often say that it feels like they're in a worse condition than when they first started or even before they were engaged in the battle. And I think it's really because we become more aware of what's going on internally that we begin to see that multiplicity of thoughts, how scattered we often are, or inattentive to what's going on interiorly. But it's also, I think once we engage in the battle, the enemy begins to to try to discourage us and to pull us out of it. And, uh, but I think the main part is, is that we think, oh my goodness, You know, one day of being mindful of my thoughts, I begin to see that I'm completely out of control and that I daydream for hours on end and let my mind just go where where it wants. Uh, B. K. Leb wrote, I personally think the inner spiritual sins are far worse than the physical sins. Yes, you know, most of the, the spiritual fathers would agree with you in that regard, that the the higher level of the vices are, are of a more spiritual nature, that have to do with thoughts, and uh, they that aren't so much rooted in the appetites. That the battle is fierce and very difficult in struggling with uh, gluttony or lust. There's no doubt about it, and that uh, and but as fierce as that battle is, and as and even though it can go on for years, that this battle with the more subtle things like pride, envy, uh, you know, anger, avarice, you know, all these things can really be very troublesome and far more subtle than you know the obvious uh, things that we struggle with in regards to the appetites. Anything? Oh, just this last little section. Uh, criticizing others after confession uh, reveals something within our own hearts. You know, if we find ourselves availing ourselves of the sacrament and seeking the mercy of God, uh, and yet we move very quickly to be critical of others because of the things they do, then we're revealing that there is still this desire within our hearts for vindication, that anger, in a sense, controls our heart still or pride, that we we want to, to correct the other or to have them punished or afflicted in some way. And, uh, and our criticism is a uh, kind of a reflection of that, a projection of that desire within the heart. And often that's a good gauge, I think, of where we are spiritually. If we find ourselves continually struggling with that, we know that we are struggling with pride and that we have to to seek to be more humble in the way that we look at others, even Mm -hmm. in the face of the things that they do or say to us. I'd rather go to heaven fat and humble than thin and proud. (laughs) Well, Uh, I I, I can understand that, but uh, I think we we would probably need to struggle with all those things. Wren. Wren writes, it would be so good for seminarians to read this particular hypothesis when they study confession. So much meaningful and practical advice. The way to engage the penitent, the call to enter into repentance with them, all just so good. Absolutely. And, you know, when I look back at the seminary years, I've often felt that, that reading the fathers and the ascetical writings in general, in terms of pastoral work on a day-to-day basis, is is far more valuable than anything else that I read and that we spent so so much class time dedicated to. Not that the study of theology as a whole isn't is invaluable, but I think we're approaching it from in the wrong direction. It really should arise out of the ascetical mystical life, the life of prayer and the ascetical life where we are seeking purity of heart then to engage in the study of theology of the principles of theology, because uh, we've heard the the fathers say, you know, without a pure heart, that theology then becomes demonic. Theology—that we are going to be led astray. How do we think about divine things? How do we study these these realities if we have not yet purified our heart? And so, this experiential knowledge of God from the perspective of the fathers is far more important. And so, you know, again, how does a priest uh, help his penitent if? He has no knowledge or experience of any of the things uh, that we're, we are talking about here. How do you offer practical, practical advice or counsel when you have not engaged in the warfare yourself? And so it should be much more like boot camp than it is a, a school of theology, you know, or maybe the older word gymnasium, isn't that what they called universities or schools? You know, that there is an exercising of this far greater reality that is not only the intellect, but the whole person. And there is a great deal that's neglected in seminary. I think part of it is, you know, it's trying to keep up with the world. You know, even the MDiv, the granting degrees, the MDiv is like the You know, being an MD, you know, so we give an MDiv, Master of Divinity. And, (laughs) uh, you know, there's something problematic with that because I think we're looking at preparation for preaching and for the spiritual life as an academic discipline, or they're approaching it in a very psychological way now, too, which has its place. But neglecting, again, I think the deeper spiritual and ascetical aspects of that formation classes are had, you know, in, you know, in the spiritual life, but not not in depth reading that I think is going to be something that's formative. So I'll never be invited to teach at a seminary. I know that (laughs) I'd be a rabble rouser just drop all those classes we're going to read Cassian cops require new priests to spend 40 days in a monastery yes that 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 was a wonderful thing and I think that actually you know the novitiate is supposed to be reflective of that too you know it's uh, first year of novitiate is really You're to love to be unknown, embracing the hidden life and engaging in the ascetical life is what it should be. And uh, I think, you know, when we rush guys out into ministry or treat training as training them to, you know, lead groups or teach groups or things like that, then it becomes superficial. I think the training should be being sent off to the desert or to... A monastery of some kind, the uh, the silent and still life where this kind of spiritual warfare can be engaged in. I think we ordain a little too early. When I think about myself being ordained in my, it was late. I think, late 20s. And, uh, you know, I don't know, you're thrown into the pulpit in the confessional when you don't know a whole lot. And... Uh, In the Eastern rites, you know, I think it's the bishop will call a person to ordination to priesthood, but it, uh, you know, often isn't an automatic kind of thing, you know, that they can be ordained maybe to the diaconate and serve well in that position, but not necessarily having that be a guarantee that they'll be called on to ordination to the priesthood. I think there should be, you know, this above all times should be a time of greater discernment for us. As well as how we go about formation, the Jesuits used to not be able to listen to women's confessions until they had been a priest for 10 years. Right, Philip Neri had you know great care in that regard, too. And uh, uh, I think a lot of this, though, would be better dealt with by better formation. Yeah, okay. So why don't we move on to the next hypothesis? This is a great one, Uh, not that they they aren't, uh, but it's avoiding certain things within the world that uh, careless men uh, would engage in certain meetings and avoiding disturbances. So things that would bring disturbances to the heart or agitation to the heart. Why is it that we would engage in the spiritual life and seeking, Uh, a kind of internal stillness in order to be able to listen to God, if we are going to thrust ourselves into circumstances that would either give rise to the passions or draw us into sinful behavior or simply make us lose what has been hard won, which is that simplicity and stillness of heart. And uh, and so it's a challenging hypothesis, but I think much needed. From uh, Palladius, to Lausus, the, perfect, or the prefect, I'm sorry. Avoid as much as possible associating with men who cannot be of any help to you and who adorn themselves inappropriately, let alone with monks who are indistinguishable in their demeanor from worldly men. By their hypocrisy, they harm those they meet, even if because of their gray hair or the wrinkles of their faces, they appear to be very distinguished though you may seem to suffer no harm from them on account of their good manners, nonetheless, that which seems to be least significant to you can wound you. By the same token, should you lower your guard and become haughty and ridicule them, this too will damage you because you will thereby be led into pride. So there's a danger in uh, engaging them Uh, because of the damage that it can be done, drawing us into particular behaviors. But there's also the danger then of of looking at them with pride and criticizing them. So drawing close to them, entering into their life, hanging out with them in places that could lead one into sin, and then stepping away and criticizing them for their behavior. Uh, All that happens is that we're drawn into a, a greater sin there. Uh, But avoid engaging men who cannot help you in any way or adorn themselves inappropriately, uh, or because of their gray hair and wrinkles on their faces, they appear to be distinguished. You know, this is one of Jesus' critiques of the scribes and the Pharisees, that externally, they appeared to be very holy men. And they lived ordered lives, and they followed the law to the smallest detail. And yet, Christ describes them in the gospel as whitewashed tombs. And, uh, you know, the hillsides would be sort of pockmarked with tombs in those days where people would be buried. And if you were to come into contact with a dead body, you were made ritually unclean. And so uh, Jesus is saying that they're like whitewashed tombs over which you walk unawares. And so they are dressed up, you know, they widen their phylacter- phylacteries, and I forget the other part of that phrase, uh, and, you know, they, they look the part, but even to come into contact with them, he tells the crowds, is to make oneself unclean. So they might be engaging in all of what seems to be correct behavior, but internally, their hearts are, are dark and and black and so to come into contact with them is to do damage to oneself and uh and so uh, you know i think in our own day uh it's again it points out why we have to be discerning uh that it's not simply knowledge of things theological or spiritual knowledge of the church or of history knowledge of theology that has any real meaning you know, it's often the, the simpler things that maybe, as, as the writers here say, that seem to be the most insignificant, that can wound you, aspects that you aren't seeing about another person's character, or about what they're saying, what they're doing, uh, and where you are opening yourself up to them, that can wound you the most. And, uh, and that was true for the, the Pharisees, that Uh, Jesus says, you know, at one point that you make them, you know, every bit the child of hell worse than yourselves, you know, because they lead them down that same path of pride that so afflicted the the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, we, you know, and we hear John the Baptist do the same thing when they were coming out, you know, for his baptism, you know, calls them a brood of, of vipers who warned you you know, about the coming fire, you know, that they were coming because the people were enamored or coming to John. And so, you know, they they did not want, you know, in a sense to be dismissed by that, you know, they didn't want to separate themselves from the crowd and so lose the kind of influence on them. So they were coming forward too, to listen to John, even though they had no, uh, they had no desire uh, to embrace what he was calling them to, which was repentance. Anthony. He gives us a remedy, using second person plural in the Our Father, so we lump ourselves together with all sinners. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right. The, again, we don't see ourselves in isolation uh, from others. And uh, in the spiritual struggle and in our beseeching God for mercy and for for forgiveness. And, uh, you know, that's part of what the Pharisees sought to do was to set themselves apart from others, uh, to distinguish themselves in one form or another. And uh, last week we even talked, I don't know if it was during the climate group, about the bloody and bruised Pharisees the ones who would not look at women and so that they would run into trees and fall into ditches uh, because they weren't watching where they were, were going. And, uh, and so reputation often doesn't mean much, if anything. Anything from this first paragraph, any, any other thoughts? Okay from St. Gregory the Diologist, Gregory the Great. Uh, a deacon who lived in the regions of Nurture went to Florentius, the ascetic and man of God, and had left the world and was living as a hermit in order to, to entrust himself to the latter's prayers. Now the deacon found outside this man's cell a countless multitude of snakes, which occupied almost the entire place. Struck with panic at this sight, he cried out, Servant of God, pray. Incidentally, the weather that day was amazingly good. When Florentius came out of his cell, he saw the numberless mass of snakes. He raised his eyes and hands to the sky and besought God to remove that fearful plague as the Lord best knew. While Florentius was praying, the sky was suddenly filled with thunder, and the thunder slew all the snakes. When he saw all of them dead, he he said, Behold, O Lord, thou hast slain them. Who then will remove them from here? As soon as he had spoken, as many birds came there, as as there were snakes that had been slain, they carried off the snakes and and hurled them far away, thereby clearing the entire place. So Peter, his disciple, asked, What were the power and righteousness of this man that by his supplication, almighty God drew so near to him. Gregory responds, Peter both purity and the innocence of the human heart can achieve much before him who is alone pure and innocent in nature. For his true servants are separated from earthly things and do not know how to say anything idle nor do they allow their minds to be distracted by empty words. Hence they find that God more readily listens to them than to other men, since they are eager to become as far as they can, like him in purity and innocence. But because we involved as we are with the cares and troubles of laymen, more frequently utter idle and shameful words, the closer we bring our mouth to the world, the further we distance it from almighty God. Many of us then are diverted to the things below and that we easily come into contact with worldly people. Rightly deeming himself wretched after seeing the king, the Lord Sabbath, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am pricked to the heart because I'm unclean and have unclean lips. He showed how it was that he had unclean lips by adding, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He felt pain at the impurity of his own lips, but made clear whence he had derived that impurity when he testified that he dwelt in the midst of people with unclean lips. For it is impossible for the mind not to be sullied by the tongues of worldly people. So, innocence and purity of heart allows God to act in and through the supplication of this holy man. And... He provides no impediment uh, due to his pride or his impurity that he, through the grace of God and through the ascetic life, has moved to a kind of purity of heart and innocence uh, so that God can do these extraordinary things through him, that even in terms of the control of nature itself, that, uh, you know, he's been raised up to such an extent that Uh, These things are not to be feared, that uh, through his supplication, that he knows that God will provide what is needed. Insofar so far as we descend entirely to their level, when we encounter them, we gradually become accustomed to associating with them, which is not fitting for us. And then gladly maintaining this contact, we no longer want to turn aside from it. Rather, it gets the better of us by force of habit. Hence it comes about that we fall from idle words into harmful ones, and thereby from trifling words into grievous ones. And so it is that our mouths will not be heard by God when we make entreaties, the more defiled they are by vain associations. As it is also written, if a man turns his ear away from hearing the law of God, his prayer will be rejected. So, you know, we... In immersing ourselves in the things of this world, we don't remain in a static position, that we are drawn along by the wave, by the current. And so if we give ourselves over to idle conversation, which might seem benign to us, and we think, okay, I'll do this in order to be engaging or to go along with the crowd. We'll feel a certain pull, a tug within ourselves, even though we know it's idle conversation and not going to bear fruit. And eventually this pulls us along until uh, we become more open then to that which is grievous, Uh, that we begin to engage in the kind of conversation that is, is impure. And so again, it's not, we're not in a static position. When we turn from God and turn to even idle things, eventually that has an impact upon us. It makes us more vulnerable uh, to being drawn into thinking or talking in a particular kind of way. Why is it surprising thus if we when we ask for something from the Lord, he's slow to hear us? After all, when we receive commands from him, we either obey him slowly or not at all. It is not surprising then that Florencius received a speedier response to his prayer since he was quick to obey the commands of the Lord. So his heart in that purity and innocence uh, was quick in its response to what God had asked. So uh, Florencius was an obedient uh, soul you know always seeking to do the will of god and so when he beseeches god to act upon his behalf or on behalf of others that uh, what what his purity and innocence produces and it's in again in the byzantine rite the gospel this weekend was the centurion coming and humbling himself before christ begging for a servant who was being tortured and and his paralysis was being twisted up and in in deep pain. And the Lord says to him, when he shows this extraordinary faith and humility that Christ says he has not encountered in anyone in Israel, not in his own apostles or disciples even, that he says, let it be done uh, according to your word. The, The centurion tells him, Lord, don't come to my house. It's a pagan household, you know, knowing that the, the, it would not be a good place for the Lord to enter. He tells him simply, you say it and let it be done. And it gives the centurion his faith, his humility, and his, uh, his love for his servant gives him a kind of uh, omnipotence, You know, the last time in the gospel that we hear that, let it be done according to your word, is when Mary says it to the angel that she will conceive the Holy Spirit and the one born of her will be the the son of God. And so the Lord, we're all that we're told in that gospel is that he marvels. He's filled with wonder at the centurion. And then he says this to him at your word, let it be done. And immediately the servant is healed. And so when we think of someone like Florentius, you know, with this kind of purity of heart and innocence, he asks the Lord, he begs the Lord to act in these circumstances, and immediately the Lord acts on his behalf. And the reason he's doing it is because he's showing the same kind of faith and the same kind of humility that the centurion showed in the gospel. And, you know, again, I think we often have a hard time wrapping our our mind around that. And I'm sure it shocked, you know, a lot of the people who are listening, you know, because the centurion would have looked like a fool. You know, he was, uh, you know, over 100 men, probably, you know, wearing his armor. You know, he was seen as an enemy by the Jews because they were part of the occupying force. And yet in the midst of this, he lets it all go, knowing that ultimately he has no power and that Caesar has no power to do what needs to be done in these circumstances. That when confronted with Christ, he sees the one alone who can really has the power to do anything about it. And so he humbles himself and in the humbling of himself brings about the healing. And so often, I think we we find what is said at the very end of this is that we are slow in our response to God. You know, even if we do obey those commands, we will drag our feet. This is sort of like Teresa of Avila saying, you know, we often drag our cross behind us. We don't pick it up and carry it. We'll begrudgingly, you know, drag it along in the dirt and... You know, so we are often slow to respond to the things that God calls us to do. And so, you know, what, what is our expectation there when that relationship is not as full as it should be, where there's an impediment there that we, we place there that obstructs then our receiving the gift of God's grace? Why, why would we think that that impediment would not first have to be removed? before we would see the action of that that grace in its fullest measure. So I I know that was sort of a lengthy way of going into this section, but I think it's important for us to understand that we, we really want to look into our own heart. You know, we can often grouse about God, not responding to the particular needs that we have or the needs that, of those that we are praying for. When the reality in our day-to-day life is that we are, are not really being responsive to God in love, faith, or humility. Not exhi- exhibiting anything of that kind of trust or desire for God. Carol, you have a thought?
1: Um. I just wanted to read something real quick, okay, if that's sure. okay. This is from Martinez, mm-hmm. and it's that um, chapter, God Comes to You in Your Lowliness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's just quicker to read it than to type it out. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But um, just a couple of quick things he says. One is, when shall we be convinced that our miserableness makes us strong against God? When shall we take cognizance of the fact that to plunge ourselves into our nothingness is the assured means to attract God? And then it also says a little bit later on, let us lower ourselves deeper into the depths of our nothingness. Then the Lord will feel the dizziness caused by the abyss, and he will plunge himself into the limitless void with the impetuous force of his mercy and his goodness.
0: Beautiful. I love Martinez. And what's the title of the book again? Worshipping the Hidden God. Uh, I've read uh, a number of chapters of that. It's an excellent book. And so I would highly recommend it. Uh, But yes, it is often our poverty, and it's our sin even, that attracts God's gaze. And uh, Father Freeman says something similar to this too, that, uh, that God saves us not, you know, in spite of our sin, but because of our sin, that His mercy is immediately attracted to the need there. You know, our poverty draws from the heart of God, this deep compassion and pity for us and desire to raise us up and lift us up out of it. And so the things that we often hate the most, our own poverty, our own weakness, the things that we want to hide, the experience of shame that we feel uh, within ourselves is often what attracts the gaze of God. And yet sometimes we will turn away into ourselves and away from God rather than turning towards him in that, knowing that his greatest desire is to heal us and to save us. And I think we, we see something similar in a lot of these stories that we've read from the Everettinos, you know, that God is attracted to the person who's struggling and it only takes, you know, this recognition of that poverty and that need that immediately draw, draws God into that person's, into what you just read from Martinus, you know, into the depths of that chaos and darkness, uh, in order that we might not struggle in isolation. Ren. The warning that idle words quickly become harmful ones is really, really helpful. I've often seen this happen in myself, yet I've never heard it explicitly said that one can so easily lead to the other. It casts a far more serious light on consenting to idle conversation, knowing how easily it leads to something more sinister. So many little sins become more sinister when you examine the greater sins that open, uh, greater sins that they open the door to. I know that even thinking about addressing this is terrifying for me, but it does make me think about how much idle conversation one is exposed to in television, movies, radio, social media, definitely thought-provoking. Right, that it has become the norm, I think, to immerse ourselves in this kind of idle conversation, whether it's directly with people or it's in and through something like, as you said, social media or television that we're listening to what is being said by other people. And we don't recognize the impact that that has upon us. And that we all often will describe it in the way that you do here, little sins, as if they warrant no concern on our part. But I think what we just heard here in some of the stories is that we don't want to see them as being insignificant that they do have this impact in the fact that they can draw us along and make us insensitive uh, in a bad way, not the way that the fathers often talk about this insensibility, but make us insensitive to the voice of our conscience and to the impact that these things have on our our hearts. Angela Finnegan. You have to unmute yourself.
1: Yeah, sorry for being verbal and not writing. Um, what Carol just read out um, caused me to think about something I was reading on the weekend from uh, Life by Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. and um, we were, you, you, you were just saying that God saves us because of our sins, not despite them, mm-hmm. and Teresa in, in, in her book was talking about how she had this deep desire to save souls and that she would work with all her might. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm thinking about that statement, how God, it was what Carol read out, how God um, saves us because of our sin, not despite them. How does that fit with avoiding disturbing people?
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, one is an action, I think, of prudence or wisdom that we, we know that we are not impervious to the impact of uh, of sin or sinful things, that we don't want to put ourselves or God to the test or to treat the grace that he's given us cheaply. So that we want to embrace that grace fully and enter into the spiritual warfare to be attentive to what's going on in our hearts so that we might find that kind of purity and innocence that Florentius had so we don't indiscriminately immerse ourselves in things that we know are going to affect us in a negative fashion. But we also have the realization and should in a spirit of humility that, uh, the, that we are capable of the, the worst kinds of sin. And that even uh, though we don't see ourselves committing anything, uh obvious that it does not mean that we've uh are sinless or perfect in the eyes of god he's the only one that sees the human heart so in the scriptures for example we hear that even the perfect the righteous man sins seven times a day so as it were even the holiest of men and women sin perfectly seven times a day uh, even unaware of it and so we are all dependent upon the grace and the mercy of God. And it's that struggle with sin that leads to the incarnation, that God does the unthinkable, the unimaginable, that he humbles himself in this extraordinary way in embracing our humanity, and, but also the weight and the burden of our struggle that we might not be in isolation and in fact that he he takes it upon himself in order that we might be lifted up and more than that that you know our humanity itself and it's you know in the fullness of who we are as human beings all this is drawn into the life of the humanity and into the life of the trinity through the incarnation and so god's love and compassion leads him to do something that you know, in the eyes, in the minds of those who first heard it, uh, heard his proclamations, was blasphemous or absurd, you know, that God would do such a thing. Uh, And as they saw him engage those who knew great poverty, the woman caught in adultery, Matthew, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, you know, spending all these times you know, with the hoi polloi, the people of the fields, you know, those who weren't keeping the law, uh, you know, that to them, that was a scandal, you know, that that he would engage them with such mercy. And for them, I think it probably seemed at the same time too good to be true, you know, that why, why would the Lord choose them or why would he engage them, uh, enter into that struggle with them and lift them out of it? And, uh, you know, so I think, you know, even after 2000 years, you know, we don't understand how greatly the, the gospel turns our world upside down, that we're still trying to form and fashion the gospel into a way that's more palatable for ourselves. You know, the whole idea of being a Catholic Uh, cafeteria catholic we've often heard of that but i think in general as christians we can do that we'll pick and choose certain things and that are palatable or that make us feel comfortable but there's nothing more revolutionary than the gospel you know in terms of our understanding of who we are as human beings the truth that is revealed in christ is you know should never be domesticated it should be always something that throws us out of our, ourselves. I was reading recently something that, there's a Russian monk uh, named Seraphim Rose, it says that you know, the, the revolution of our day and the, all the revolutions that have sort of taken place in the last couple of centuries, all are a rejection of, of the truth that it is no longer true. And to think that we then can create our own revolution, counter-revolution, whether it's political or spiritual, to engage that is foolhardy. It shows that we understand nothing of what has taken place in the world over these past couple centuries. The only way for us to respond to what we see going on in the world is our immersion in the truth, who is Christ? and allow that to shape and transform us. That we are not going to, as it were then, you know, to uh, create this kind of spiritual revolution, that somehow we are going to renew the power of the gospel to change the world. You know, it's still a very worldly, self-centered view of the spiritual life. And our response to what we see going on in the world and the turning away from the truth and such, and turning into darkness should be our immersion in the truth, allowing ourselves to be transformed. And, you know, sometimes I even think, you know, we hear the term like the new evangelization. You know, again, it's become, uh, you know, part of the modern Christian par- uh, parlance. You know, it's our. It's our new vocabulary, the way that we speak about things. But what does it really mean? You know, the new evangelization. Are we going to repackage the gospel in a way that somehow is going to be more powerful than the gospel that's been given to us? And than the, the, the person of Christ himself. And if we could, you know, if we get out of this world having converted one person, ourselves, all is good and well. Uh, Because that would, you know, I think that it would have more impact upon the world than our words. You know, I came across a little quote from Therese Therese of Lisieux saying that, you know, one bit of suffering embraced on behalf of others is more important than, you know, any words that we could speak or any sermons that could be preached. You know, this one act of selfless love you know, embraced on behalf of others. And, you know, I think we often will turn Christianity into a kind of project, you know, and, or as Seraphim Rose said, into, you know, that we need to create this spiritual revolution. And I think that kind of attitude is what sort of has Christians at, at, you know, we're at each other's throats. You know, this, you know, it's a revolution against each other as to who should be at the forefront of that spiritual revolution, who's got it right. And nobody has it right, because our focus is not upon Christ and conversion and repentance.
1: Reminds me today. Sorry. Um, I'm in Australia, and and today it's um, Tuesday, Mm -hmm. which is uh, a memorial for a British uh, man who went to his death in the... um, Uh, in persecution in England Mm -hmm. and um, it was at Oxford and um, he yelled out just before he died I'm being killed because I'm Catholic Mm -hmm. and some of the university men there yelled out "Um, you don't even you wouldn't even know how to verbalize what being a Catholic is (laughs) and he responded by saying well what I can't say in words I will seal with my blood Right, And I think I'm just thinking of that uh, with your explanation, and it's, um, it's, it's lovely, lovely to hear. Right.
0: Thank you. Wonderful example. I think that's true. I mean, I think it is easier for us to talk about or explain things and to spend that. And in that sense, we engage in this kind of idle conversation, too, and not really be living from moment to moment what we've been called to live or even embrace the first words out of christ's mouth which was what john called us to as well repent and you know often the word you know metanoia is misunderstood you know it's not just repentance in this you know turning away from this or that sin it's a real it's a a sort of like a flipping over of our of reality as a whole for us that how we see ourselves as human beings how we see god is radically changed now in and through the incarnation and through the paschal mystery and that should reshape our lives in this radical way and we move away from that i think there's a kind of fundamental resistance on a spiritual and psychological level that keeps us from opening up to it we fear it and the only way that fear is overcome is through this experience of of god and that and of his love that allows us to entrust ourselves to His hands. Okay, so we're I'm sorry we're a little over time tonight. So when we stop there for the evening, uh, and uh, thank you all for your wonderful comments. As always, very challenging tonight, but beautiful as always. So let we close this with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy
1: Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you all.